morning, church. You guys came singing today. That blessed me. What would you say is paradise? You might instinctively think of paradise as an endless adventure or exquisite material comforts or the ability to do whatever you want, never having to worry about the consequences. Whatever your heart might lean toward, perhaps the paradise of Eden and the promise of redemption define paradise a little differently, a little more perfectly. Let's pray. Father, you said you sent your son, and your son told us that he came that we might have life (laughs) and have it abundantly. God, help us to know what that means. Help us to come to your word with open hearts and open hands to receive what you have said to your people for thousands of years. And help us to see you and know you and to see and know what that means for our lives. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Before we get into today's scripture text, I want to talk about paradise. What is paradise? Rather than going off on some subjective speculation about what is the best life, I want to point us back to somewhere we've already read about, namely the Garden of Eden. What about Eden made it very good? What about it was special and ideal before sin entered in? Well, it seems like there are many things that are desirable. Plentiful food, a beautiful garden, animals. There's peace and purpose. Yes. But one biblical theologian is helpful in identifying three factors that help clarify what made Eden so good for humans and why it is upheld as an ideal place throughout the rest of Scripture before sin entered in. He argues this. Paradise equals God's people in God's place with God's presence. God's people, Adam and Eve, were in God's place, the Garden of Eden. And the Garden of Eden was filled with God's presence God walked with Adam and Eve in the garden. Notice that each element of paradise points to its loving source. It is created by God, cared for by God, or simply is God dwelling there. But what happened when sin entered the picture? All three of these factors of paradise were disbanded. Adam and Eve, God's people, were cast out of the garden, God's place. 
And as ashamed sinners, they could no longer stand in God's presence. But the rest of Scripture is really a story about God restoring paradise. God's plans, promises, and actions all work toward bringing his people to his perfect place, fully enjoying life in his presence forever. In our text today, we see God taking another step in fulfilling this plan by initiating a covenant with a man through whom God will create a people and establish for them a place where his presence will dwell forever. Keep this paradise equation in mind as we jump into today's text. The main idea of today's message is this. The benefits of God's promises are received by belief. Turn with me in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 12. In the Bible, in the pew, it's on page 8. Just before chapter 12, the author traces the descendants of Shem, one of Noah's sons, to a man named Terah. We are told Terah sojourned with his son Abram and Abram's wife Sarai, along with Abram's nephew, Lot, from Ur to Haran. It's important to note that in chapter 11, verse 30, we read that Abram's wife, Sarai, was barren. Surely, it would not be through this couple that God would bring his promised offspring from Genesis 3.15. Read with me chapter 12, verses 1 through 3. Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation. And I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you. And him who dishonors you, I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. There is no indication in the text that Abram first sought after God or called upon the name of the Lord or that there was anything particularly special about him. Rather, God's direct communication to Abram comes suddenly without warning. And what he said must have been completely disorienting. Go, God says, from everything you're familiar with, your country, your friends, your relatives, to what? A land. A land that's picked out by God. One that God will show Abram. But what will happen there? Look at verse 2. God will make Abram into a great nation. Abram will be blessed by God, and God will make his name great. But notice that God will bless Abram for a purpose. Look at the end of verse 2. I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. This divine blessing will be so intense that those who bless Abram will share in his blessing from God. And those who seek to dishonor Abram will be cursed by God. What's more, this blessing will spread increasingly outward through Abram until all the families of the earth shall be blessed. 
as David noted last week in his message, this earthwide blessing will be through Abram, but it will be God performing the blessing so that Abram can only boast in God. You can't help but think that the initial command, go, now must seem fairly minuscule to Abram. Leave everything you know and love. Whoa. But gain direct blessing from God, a land and a great nation that will eventually bless the entire earth. The initial command of sacrifice and sojourning, now within the context of God's promise, pales in comparison to what is gained through following God. But it is only gain if the promiser can be trusted to accomplish what he promises. What is Abram's response? Verse 4. So Abram went, as the Lord had told him, and Lot went with him. Abram was 75 years old when he departed from Haran, and Abram took Sarai, his wife, and Lot, his brother's son, and all their possessions that they had gathered, and the people that they had required in Haran, and they set out to go to the land of Canaan. Immediate, total obedience. Apparently, Abram not only heard God rightly, but he was confident God could be taken at his word. Even at the age of 75, Abram gathered everything, his family and all their possessions and belongings, which would signify this is a permanent move. But crucial to understanding Abram's obedience is that Abram went, verse 4 says, as the Lord had told him. He was absolutely dependent on God's initial call. God's sudden call to Abram is the only reason he can pursue this blessing in the first place. If the promise is fulfilled, this initial call itself is a stunning gift. Let's keep reading. Look at the end of verse 5. When they came to the land of Canaan, Abram passed through the land to the place of Shechem, to the oak of Moreh. At that time, the Canaanites were in the land. Then the Lord appeared to Abram and said, To your offspring I will give this land. So he built there an altar to the Lord who had appeared to him. As Abram journeyed, the Lord appeared to Abram at a particular place, Shechem in Canaan. God told Abram, this is the land he will give to Abram's offspring. To the original Israelite audience, this would remind them that God's command to head east from Egypt after the exodus to the land of Canaan was not random. This land had been promised to them by God for hundreds of years. In recognition of the significance of this promise, Abram worshipped God by building an altar. Let's keep reading. Verse 8. From there, he moved to the hill country on the east side of Bethel and pitched his tent, with Bethel on the west and Ai on the east. And there he built an altar to the Lord and called upon the name of the Lord. And Abram journeyed on, still going toward the Negeb. Again, Abram builds an altar to the Lord. And the text says, this time he called upon the name of the Lord, like, he saw the, like we saw the descendants of Seth do in Genesis chapter 4. The picture this narrative is forming of Abram is quite positive. He is set apart by the Lord for no specified reason. But Abram listens to the Lord, obeys him, and shows dedication through his sojourning. 
Unfortunately, however, this picture of Abram, this good picture of Abram, quickly dissolves. The second half of chapter 12 tells us that Abram, out of fear, tries to save his own neck by telling his wife to lie and give herself over to the ruler of Egypt. God, however, despite Abram's sin, intervenes and saves Abram and his entire household. God proves himself faithful to his promise, even when Abram isn't. Surely, Abram is no perfect man, but God is. He's a perfect giver. Soon after, chapter 13 tells us Abram and Lot inevitably separate into different lands due to their great possessions. Let's move down to chapter 13 and read verses 14 through 18. The Lord said to Abram, after Lot had separated from him, uh, let me see, sorry. The Lord said to Abram, after Lot had separated from him, lift up your eyes and look from the place where you are, northward, southward, and eastward, and westward. For all the land that you see, I will give to you and to your offspring forever. I will make your offspring as the dust of the earth, so that if one can count the dust of the earth, your offspring also can be counted. Arise, walk through the length and the breadth of the land, for I will give it to you. So Abram moved his tent and came and settled by the oaks of Mamre, which are at Hebron. And there he built an altar to the Lord. Abram has just proven himself to be untrusting and unfaithful to God in Egypt. Yet here, God increases Abram's knowledge of the scope of his promise. He expands Abram's vision concerning the land his offspring will inherit. He extends the amount of time his offspring will dwell in the land into eternity. He also reveals an analogy for how many offspring Abram should expect from the promise. As many as the dust of the earth. Surely this God's promises to this man are incomparably great. But hold on. The place extends to the borders of Abram's vision. His people will be innumerable, and it will, be, and it will all come by the blessing of this God. We should hear echoes in our minds that paradise could well be coming back through this man's offspring. Though I love chapter 14, the next chapter, its contents aren't central to this message. So for the sake of time, we're going to move down to chapter 15. What I'll point out about the previous chapters is that God has shown himself faithful to Abram through both Abram's failure in Egypt and through his blessing of Abram with possessions, land, and even success in battle. Read with me chapter 15, verses 1 and 2. After these things, the, uh, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Fear not, Abram. I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. But Abram said, O Lord God, what will you give me? For I continue childless, and the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. And Abram said, Behold, you have given me no offspring, and a member of my household will be my heir. It's in light of God's faithfulness that he reassures Abram he should fear not. God has displayed 
and now proclaims he himself is Abram's shield. God also reminds Abram that his reward shall be very great. But how does Abram respond to God's reassurances? He questions God and even challenges him. Now, to Abram's credit, his response is at least honest. He does not doubt that God will give him a very great reward. What will you give me? But he can't reasonably connect this great reward of God's radical promise of innumerable offspring with the heir of his house, Eliezer, since Eliezer isn't one of his own children. He also rightly states that God has not given him an offspring as he promised. You have given me no offspring. In fact, this bold statement implies that God must be the one who acts in order for his promise to occur in reality. It, it is honest. Yet his honest response still shows there is some doubt in God's promise since God has not given him any evidence at that time of it being fulfilled. Read with me verses 4 through 6. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him. This man shall not be your heir. Your very own son shall be your heir. And he brought him outside and said, Look toward heaven and number the stars, if you are able to number them. Then he said to him, So shall your offspring be. And Abram believed the Lord. And the Lord counted it to him as righteousness. God responds directly to Abram's honest question, and he assures Abram his original promise still stands. Abram's heir will be his very own son. Then God leads Abram outside to give him another analogy for the number of offspring that will come from him, the innumerable stars in the heavens. As Abram listened to God remind him of his promised offspring, we learn that he believed the Lord and the Lord counted it to him as righteousness. But what does that mean? This is the first time in the Bible that we encounter the words believe and righteousness. The verb for believe in Hebrew conveys a sense of wholehearted trust. This belief, we are told, is counted or credited to Abram as righteousness. But what does it mean for God to count Abram righteous? At root, it means that Abram is in right relation and right moral standing before God. But remember what sin did to Adam and Eve's relationship with God? Sin severed the relationship. Sin brought about God's fitting punishment of death since humanity sought to be their own gods and they cut themselves off from the true God, the giver of life. But now, God declares Abram to be in right moral standing and relationship with him because of his belief. But wait, we've already seen Abram's sin. And if you keep reading, we will see Abram's sin again. <laughs> if it was sin that cast Adam and Eve away from God's presence, how on earth can God be just to declare Abram righteous if he's not actually meeting God's holy standards of living? which would allow him to be in right relationship with God. Perhaps there is a clue as we continue reading. Verse 7. And God said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out from Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess. But Abram said, O Lord God, 
how am I to know that I shall possess it? Along with God's promise of innumerable offspring, people, God also reassures Abram that he will give him the land of Canaan, a place to possess. How does God respond to another one of Abram's questions? Read with me verses 9 through 11. God said to Abram, Bring me a heifer three years old, a female goat three years old, a ram three years old, a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. And Abram brought him all these, cut them in half, and laid each half over against the other. But he did not cut the birds in half. And when birds of prey came down on the carcasses, Abram drove them away. What is going on? (laughs) For us, as a 21st century audience, this is a very odd response to Abram's question. (laughs) Abram, however, seemed to intuit what God was doing. God only had to name the animals Abram should bring to him. Then Abram, without instruction, cut them in half and laid each half over against the other. But why did God have Abram set up this hallway of carcasses? Let's read to the end of the chapter. As the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell on Abram, and behold, a dreadful and great darkness fell upon him. Then the Lord said to Abram, Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs and will be servants there, and they will be afflicted for 400 years. But I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve, and afterward they shall come out with great possessions. As for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You shall be buried in a good old age, and they shall come back here in the fourth generation, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete." When the sun had gone down and it was dark, behold, a smoking firepot and a flaming torch passed between these pieces. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying, To your offspring I give this land, from the river of Egypt to the great river, the river Euphrates, the land of the Kenites, the Kenizzites, the Cabanites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Rephaim, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Girgashites, and the Jebusites. In a state of deep sleep, a dreadful and great darkness falls upon Abram, which, throughout the Old Testament, this great darkness, this dreadful great darkness, symbolizes the presence of the Lord. In this state, God answers Abram's question about land from verse 8 in two ways. First, he prophesies to Abram exactly how his his descendants will inhabit the land. After 400 years of affliction, God will redeem his descendants and bring them into this land to remove the residing nations whose iniquity will then be filled up and the original Israelite, sorry, and remove the the, uh, iniquity of those in the land. The original Israelite audience after the Exodus can now see that this prophecy was exactly right. Second, God answers Abram by showing him a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch, which would remind the original readers of when God led them in a pillar of cloud and a fire through the wilderness of Egypt. Therefore, they would understand that the smoking fire pot and flaming torch is God's presence passing between the split animals. 
But what is that act symbolizing? Verse 18 gives us our answer. On that day, the Lord made, or literally cut, a covenant with Abram. In Abram's day, when two parties desired to establish the most serious kind of binding promise or a covenant, they would cut animals in half, just like Abram did, and walk together between them, with each other, between the animal carcasses. By doing this act, the parties were agreeing that if either of them should prove disloyal to the terms of this covenant, they are to be cursed and torn apart like these animals. In Jeremiah 34, the king of Judah made this same type of covenant with the people of Jerusalem. The terms of the covenant were that all the people who had Hebrew slaves had to set them free forever. And they agreed. They passed through a calf that was cut in two in order to ratify the covenant. But after a time, the covenant was transgressed by the people when they took back their slaves. After this, God declared to them that he will make the transgressors like the calf they had cut in two. That covenantal ceremony is what God showed Abram. However, the original audience would see a mind-numbingly big difference between their ceremonies and God's ceremony with Abram. God's presence is going between the animals. But where is Abram? God said he made a covenant with Abram. But God, by this ceremony, with only him walking through the animals, is making himself responsible to uphold the terms of this covenant. God is, in essence, telling Abram, may this curse be done to me alone if the terms of my covenant with you are broken. Abram, I will take all responsibility and all consequences to ensure my promises to you and to all your offspring are carried out. God's fulfillment of his paradise-echoing promises to Abram and his offspring rests upon God's very own being. Abram can rest in God's covenant with him, knowing that God will bring about all that he has promised, whatever the cost. Even if the cost is the suffering, pain, and death of his very own son. God determined to fulfill his promises with Abram independently because God knew that if Abram had entered the covenant, he would undoubtedly fail. Why? Because of his sin. And God knew that all Abram's offspring would fail in their sin as well. It is sin that separated Adam and Eve Abram, and all of humanity from paradise with God in the first place. And so we see that sin is the primary obstacle God has to overcome in order to fulfill this promise of a new people in a new place in God's presence. So how did God overcome sin, his greatest obstacle? In the fullness of time, we're told in the New Testament, God sent forth his son to bear our sins in his body on the tree. He was pierced for our transgressions, crushed for our iniquities, 
and with his wounds we are healed. God overcame the obstacle of sin by embracing the just penalty for sin on our behalf. And in Christ, God becomes the author, as we saw today, and the perfecter of Abram's salvation and ours. But what is this salvation? It's every promise of God turned into a yes in Christ. Salvation means you receive all of God's promises of paradise. It means you get to be among God's people from every tribe, tongue, and nation in a place that is designed and built by God Almighty where the streets are paved with gold and there is no darkness since the perfect presence of God is his eternal light. With all that said, what does all this mean for you? How do you become a benefactor in these promises? What is not going to work is the same thing that did not work for Abram. You cannot uphold your end of the deal. You can't restore a right relationship with God by being good enough, just like Abram wasn't good enough. Psalm 14.3 tells us, all of us have turned aside. We have all become corrupt. None of us does good, not even one. But what is going to work is what worked for Abram. Remember what was said of Abram in today's text. Abram believed God and belief was counted to him as righteousness. Why do you have to believe, what do you have to believe about God in order to be counted as righteous like Abram? When Abram heard the call of God, he, one, believed that the promise of being God's people in his land with his presence was worth everything, and he uprooted his life for it. And two, he believed that only God can provide all that he promised. Similarly, what we must believe to be counted as righteous before God is one, that the promise of being God's people in his place, enjoying his presence, is worth everything, and that only God can get you into God's presence. Abram believed that only God could provide all that he promised. And God sent his son, Jesus Christ, for us to fulfill all righteousness. Therefore, we must believe that God provides all that he promised through Jesus Christ and him alone, through repentance and faith. Jesus says in John 14, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Our sin is what separates us from paradise with God. It is through Christ and only Christ that all God's promises are yes and amen. Do you hear the call of God inviting you into paradise with him? Do you hear the chorus of millions numbering the stars of heaven singing hallelujah for the Lord God Almighty reigns. His steadfast love endures forever. Are you willing to leave all worldly comforts behind in pursuit of the surpassing worth of knowing God in Christ Jesus. Repent and believe. Repent of, your, of being your own God and sinning against him. And believe that being with God, this God, who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, is worth everything. Let's pray.
Father, you determined to give us a picture of what being in covenant with you is like. You took on everything we need to be with you. You showed us that you are the one who passes over former sins and redeems us in, through your son's blood to be with you forever. You have taken on all terms of what is needed to have us enter into paradise with you. So Lord, help us to trust in what you've done for us. Help us to hear your call. Help us to hear the call, follow me, knowing that you are the one who's paid for everything for us, for us to enter into eternal life with you by your son. And help us to rejoice, knowing that we have your blood covering us through belief, knowing that you will bring us to the end in safety and peace and joy, no matter what happens in this life. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.